This is R.J. Rushdooney, Easy Chair Number 370, September the 4th, 1996. In this session, Douglas Murray, Andrew Sandlin, Mark Rushdooney, and I will discuss the falsification of history. One of the things that... Uh, we see increasingly is that people are rewriting history not to correct but to falsify it. For example, when I was a child I was taught about George Washington and every child could recite about him first in war, first in peace, and first in the hearts of his countrymen. Now, you learn hardly anything about Washington in school. And about 30 years ago, I began to hear from students and uh, occasionally met teachers who insisted that Washington was a scoundrel and then proceed to uh, state things that were somewhat pornographic obviously untrue, but venomous about Washington. Not only about Washington, you can hear this about any uh, man who doesn't meet the current idea of political correctness. Well, we've dirtied up a great deal of history. One of the things that has concerned me especially has been the false image of the West. About, oh, let me see, I forget just when it was. Uh, oh, it was 1989. I read uh, a very interesting book by an historian, Roger D. McGrath, Gunfighters, Highwomen, and Vigilantes, Violence on the Frontier. Well, what... Uh, Dr. McGrath pointed out, and uh, I'd like to read a letter from him. Uh, and he says, John Lofton asked me to send to you a copy of a book I wrote comparing frontier crime with that in America today. I made a number of points in the book, Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, uh, but most importantly, I think I demonstrate very clearly that modern crime had absolutely no connection with the violence and lawlessness that occurred on the frontier. In the booming mining towns of Aurora and Bodie, for example, robbery, burglary, and theft occurred only infrequently, and rape seems not to have occurred at all. Racial violence and serious juvenile crime were absent also. The homicides that occurred almost invariably resulted from gunfights between willing com combatants in a fair fight. The old, the weak, the innocent, the young, and the female were not the targets of violent men. The frontier west was a far better place than any American city is today. Those on the left resist this idea 
because it forces them to concede that the changes they have wrought in our society during the last generation or two have caused a precipitous decline in our civilization. I did not set out to romanticize the Old West, but nonetheless I found the most romantic characters imaginable, men and women who were courageous, adventurous, honest, honorable, entrepreneurial, and self-reliant. One other interesting and telling point about the Westerners I studied was the values they held. Although they went west to strike it rich, a materialistic end to be sure, they held very dearly, as clearly demonstrated by their actions, such non-materialistic values as courage, patriotism, loyalty, and honesty. Now, Dr. McGrath is absolutely right. And when you look at Western history and then the West as depicted in films and on television, it's a very different story. There were a few cities from Kansas on to Arizona that were rather wild. However, what we are not told is that those were wild towns just for a few months. They began as way stops, say, for miners or for cattle drives and the like. But very quickly, businessmen and churches moved in. And the churchwomen united with the businessmen to bring about law and order. So the criminal element quickly left. They were run out of town or sent to the state penitentiary. And some of the people who were glamorized like uh, Wyatt Earp, who really would come into a mining camp to be uh, the protector of the house of prostitution. Uh, he had to move on regularly because there was no need for his services. The mining towns were law-abiding places. And Dr. McGrath shows how rape was a rarity. Even Indian women who were supposed to be raped at will such a rate was exceedingly rare. Indians were well-treated. Mexicans were well-treated. Blacks were well-treated. Bigotry was not a mark of the frontier or the mining camp. This aspect of our history is very much suppressed. In fact, we are given the myth that we have been a wild country all our history. You read, and of course there have been films about uh, the Roaring Twenties and what a wild, wild place Chicago was. Well, in the Capone days, when Chicago was a horror to the United States as a whole, there were fewer crimes committed in a year in Chicago 
than are committed in a month. Fewer murders, fewer crimes of any kind. So the Capone Chicago compared to the present one and to any present city was a fairly law-abiding place. Now, this does not mean there were not wild cities occasionally, but they were not the frontier towns by and large, except very briefly. We did have a very, very wild city in San Francisco, and uh, most people are not aware of the full extent of it. But uh, it was a port town, it was a point of entry to get to the gold fields and it had the influx of uh, criminal gangs, the Sydney Ducks from Australia and so on. By and large our history has been one of a law-abiding country with a few spots here and there that have been bad. But we dirty up our history, we dirty up our first president, we dirty up anything we can think about because the expose and the shock-filled film or TV program are more appreciated than the truth. Well, <clears throat> when you're talking about uh, our first president at Washington, uh, I think you have to conjure the picture in your mind. If you take out a dollar bill and realize that this very homely-looking man, almost bordering on ugly, with false wooden teeth, and I'm sure that his uh, uh, they, there was no uh, mouthwash available in those <laughs> days, <laughs> uh, I'm sure that uh, his reports of amorous adventures are uh, way overblown. But... Uh, there, was a, there was an old newspaper saying that when the legend becomes bigger than the man, print the legend. And here again we have the influence of the media of those days romanticizing what was going, uh, isolated uh, instances of violence in the, uh, in the frontier. And uh, they were trying, I suppose, to create a, uh, a sense of adventure, uh, to try to lure people into the unknown. Uh, Horace Greeley, Go West Young Man, uh, the overblown tales of riches to be found in the gold fields when probably only somewhere between 5 and 10% of the people who came out here actually did very well. The rest of them either starved to death or went home broke or went somewhere else. Uh, there was a great deal of romanticizing of frontier life, and uh, the the media of its day just blew it all out of proportion. They looked for anything that was uh, out of the ordinary, when in fact women were held in very high regard because there were so few of them. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, I mean, I hear many stories that come down through my own family and other families uh, up here of... of uh, early day uh, women that ran boarding houses here for the miners and they were revered. I mean, they were, they would, you know, some guy who uh, got hurt, for instance, in the mine, they would take him in and feed him until he got well. Uh, I mean, they were like uh, an army of Florence Nightingales. The uh, the Rolleri Hotel here in town, Mama Rolleri was one of those. Uh, uh, my uh, 
wife's uh, great-grandmother, Rajo, over in uh, Big Oak Flat. She ran the stage line in the Wells Fargo office in a boarding house. And uh, they were revered. And you take a look at the pictures, the tintypes and some of the very first uh, motion pictures of the gold fields, and you find women in long black dresses working, shoveling, you know, helping their husbands because it was do or die. You either, there was no welfare, there was no safety net. You either found gold or you were going to be in rough shape. You were going to, you were going to have to rely on uh, on somebody else's help, and, and that thought was almost unthinkable to people. They would work ten times harder uh, trying to support themselves. So the, uh, and the violence, uh, there were those occasional romanticized uh, individuals like Joaquin Murrieta, well, uh, you know, uh, violence was done to his family. His wife was raped and murdered, and, you know, he went nuts. I mean, he was, uh, uh, he went psycho and uh, just, you know, lost all control. But even he was romanticized. You know, they supposedly cut off his head and put it in a in a a, a jar and displayed it. You know, in a, in a bar room. Well, they didn't even know if they had Joaquin Murrieta's head or not. <laughs> you know, but it it brought in the customers, so it didn't matter to them. Uh, but you know, the I, my uh, my grandmother. Uh, was a child and rode in a covered wagon coming uh, uh, coming west uh, in the Oklahoma run. She remembers going across the Oklahoma panhandle when they opened up the territory there, and she was a kid in a covered wagon. And uh, I asked her, you know, I'm, you know, I'd seen all of the cowboy and Indian pictures when I was a kid and I said, well, it must have been terribly dangerous and so forth. She says, no. <laughs> she said, everybody wore a gun. They were very polite to each other. Uh, but there was restraint. There was civility. There was courtesy because everybody was up against the same adversity. And everybody knew that they had to rely on each other to some extent to survive. But there were stories like even here in Angel's Camp before the road was paved in downtown Angel's Camp. It was, it was, uh, uh, if a woman wanted to cross the, the street in downtown to, to get from one store to the other on opposite side of the street, a man would pick her up and carry her through the mud in, in, in calf deep mud across the road. I mean, there was, you know, today that uh, if the same situation uh, existed, I doubt that that would happen. The women are liberated and the men would never want to do it. Yeah. Well, they'd be afraid. They'd get get, uh, knocked out or something. They'd get kicked. You mentioned Joaquin Murrieta. What we need to realize, that was blown up out of all proportion. It was not a representative incident. Uh, rapes of that kind were very, very rare. When I was still a student, uh, back in the 30s, I did a great deal of reading on California history and the Indians. Uh, 
And the thing that startled me was that when the miners came here, of course, white women were a rarity. In fact, if they heard one was coming, all work would stop and people mm -hmm. would line up <laughs> and catch a sight of a woman and they'd take their hats off when yeah. she passed by. Well, the Indian tribes were decimated for a number of years because every Indian woman between the ages of 14 and over 40 even had no trouble finding a white man who would marry her. And the sons and daughters of the Golden West, your old Californians, all have a great deal of Indian blood. It's diluted by now, but that's how they started because there were very, very few American women in California in those days. And it was some time before any came. So uh, that, uh, as a student, interested me and amazed me greatly because the common stories were uh, beginning then to appear in popular fiction about uh, the abuse of the Hispanic or Mexican and Indian women. Of course, the biggest uh, tearjerker, oh, in the 20s, I believe, or early 30s, was the film Ramona. Mm -hmm. uh, well, the reality was very different. The white men here treated the Indian women with great respect. They married them. They made them into the uh, mothers of the uh, uh, first-generation Californians. It's a very different story from what we hear. I've often asked, told my students regarding the Indians says that there were, there were relatively few compared to the modern population of, of the United States, but we didn't kill them out. They, they intermarried, and they're still around. Yeah. <laughs> it's just yeah. that they go by every name yeah. imaginable. And so I asked them, says, um, how many of you have English blood in you? You know, half the class or more will raise their hand. And half are, you know, have Scottish, all right, all right, Scottish blood in you. And some of them raise their hand. How about German? Go through. And says, now how many ha I know that there's some Indian blood in you in most of the class? Of the <laughs> that's what yeah. happened to them. We didn't kill them off, yes. now, did we? Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. that's very, very true. Yeah. Sure, quite One true. anthropologist a few years back said, uh, attacked that myth. And uh, he said, if you want to uh, know where the most of the Indians are, just stand at any street corner in a major city, a fair percentage of those who walk by you will have Indian blood. Yeah. But it's interesting, anthropologists say that doesn't count. They've lost the culture, and so we've killed off the, the, the culture, and it's, it's tantamount to genocide. 
it doesn't matter whether those people are perfectly happy and content in the way their yeah. lives are now. Yeah. That's not good enough for the anthropologists. Exactly. Instead of eating bugs and grubbing for roots, why they're yes. doing a little better now. And, uh, well, I was going to mention uh, just quickly another era that's really the object of Rush, what you've called the falsification of history is uh, the discovery of America and Christopher Columbus and yes. that sort of thing. I mention that. It's on my mind because in the those of you that received the Chalcedon Report, I believe it's the September issue, has an excellent article by Brian Edwards on that very topic, on yes. colonial intent, as though um, he was here to enslave people and rape the land and cared about nothing but making money. Yes. But anyone who reads his diaries knows just the opposite. He was a godly man trying to do what was right to do. That's In fact, right. it was not really politically correct to make too much of a big deal about the 500th anniversary of the discovery of America yeah. because they had to spend most of their time apologizing for Columbus mm -hmm. and therefore they, um, not a great deal was made of it. When I was a kid, they had Columbus Day celebrations in San Francisco, and they actually got out there in a little boat with a sail on it, and some guy dressed up, looked like Christopher Columbus, and he would walk ashore at Ocean at uh, Marina down there in San Francisco. And the, the Italians, uh, most of them who were very wealthy, who owned shares in the Sunset Scavenger Company, which was a, the uh, garbage collection company in San Francisco, and had bought shares. You know, when they came to this country, they were offered the opportunity to work for shares. And uh, as the company grew, they became immensely wealthy. Well, they'd all be outstanding there at the marina in San Francisco watching this Columbus Day celebration. And it was it was uh, probably the biggest event in San Francisco. Yes. Across the country, Columbus Day, when I was growing up, was a major holiday. Now it's nothing. I think one reason that he singled out for such hatred is he was a man that was indeed exercising godly dominion. He wasn't perfect, yes. but he was exercising godly dominion. And um, those who hate the Christian faith despise that with a passion. He was an interesting man, too, in that the evidence points to uh, his being a converted Jew. And he actually took someone who was fluent in Hebrew along with him, thinking he might encounter the uh, Jews of the Ten Lost Tribes or the Israelites uh, in the uh, East Indies. He wanted to refinance. He wanted to find the wealth of the Orient because he wanted to finance another crusade to capture the Holy Land. Yes. You don't hear about that no. too often. And he felt that he was going to fulfill the prophecies of Isaiah, carrying the faith to the uttermost isles of the earth. I believe that uh, this Christian historian John Eidsmo actually wrote a book on Columbus and Cortez. Yes. That then dealt with uh, just largely a number of citations and quotes yes. about these men. Generally, the Indians were treated quite well in colonial history. Yeah. In fact, it was to the advantage of the Indians to deal with the settlers, and they liked being in close association because of the trading potential. And very early on, the, the idea of having the English as their ally against the, their um, 
their Indian enemies was, was very important. Of course, that's why the Iroquois Confederate, um, Confederation became aligned with the English early on, and the Algonquin became aligned with the French because that was an early on. They, they pick, sort of picked sides and picked their European allies. The, some of the greatest injustices, not too surprising, of our Indian relations came in when it became a, an area of government bureaucracy, and the yes. government was dealing with them at, at very remote. Yeah. Uh, in Washington, was dealing with Indians uh, hundreds and hundreds of miles away. That, they, that the real injustices occurred not at, not early in our history. Robert uh, um, Robert Service wrote uh, Tales of the uh, North about the Klondike. Yes. Um, big uh, thousands of guys went up there uh, around 18, I guess, 1890s. And it was for a Klondike gold rush. And um, everybody, uh, you know, he romanticized, but it, it was brutal. I mean, absolutely brutal. You read some of the diaries of the men that went there, and uh, the conditions were just unreal. I doubt if there's one in a thousand men today that could survive what those people went through. And um, uh, very few of them found any wealth, but it was the adventure that drove them. But Robert Service himself was a bank teller. He never turned a shovel full of dirt, but he wrote about it as if he'd done it all. <laughs> and I think there's there was a lot of that. There were, weren't there, uh, Rush, there were some uh, penny novels or... The, the, oh, yes. the writers in those days used to crank out that romanticized dime the old west novels, and dime yeah. novels of the uh, they created a vast myth uh, their readers wanted excitement sure. and television and uh, the films were picked up on those dime novels one scholar in the past 10 15 years wrote an account of the mining camps in this area. And what he pointed out in his very interesting book was uh, the miners would spend their Sundays writing letters home and reading their Bible. They would welcome the uh, circuit riders who had come through to preach. They were anything but the wild characters they have been depicted as being. I think the evidence of that uh, we've all noticed on uh, Highway 4 as you go down towards Stockton. Uh, before you leave the hills, off to the left, there is an oak tree with a, a fine iron fence around it and a grave uh, with a beautiful stone there. And it is in memory of an Englishman who came here and then took sick and died a long, long ways from home. And so his fellow miners, at no small expense, because he had no one here, and they didn't know his family back in England, put up that fence and that stone in his memory. Well, that tells you something about the 49ers. They were not the wild characters 
they are portrayed as having been. No, it's not as lawless because they very quickly organized before there was any, uh, you know, U.S. marshals or sheriffs or anything else. They formed mining districts, and uh, boy, if you <laughs> if you stole from somebody, I mean, back in those days, you could leave your your bag of gold sitting on your table and go to town and come back and it'd still be there because you didn't dare steal in those days. They'd they'd hang you right now. Back in the mid-1970s, when we moved up here, about that time I met someone who was an old-timer in this area, and he told me, he said something, it was a law-abiding area, the gold rush uh, country, and he, he he said, I uh, know a little a bit about the real crime that occurred there. And he said it was by surveyors. He said, in those days, if you bought a piece of property, you had a surveyor come in from some distance. He'd come up and he'd take a look at the weather and the terrain and how muddy it was. And he'd invent your property lines yeah. <laughs> and uh, then hurry for the nearest bar to uh, warm up with some liquor. So he said uh, there are very often, especially with the old pieces of property, real problems mm -hmm. uh, trying to establish the meaning of the original uh, description of the property. But he said apart from that, it was a law-abiding area. Well, they didn't, uh, you know, they used <laughs> they used uh, trees yes. quite often <laughs> for property corners. And, of course, a tree got hit by lightning and burn up or something. It's not there anymore. You know, they didn't, they apparently didn't go to the trouble of driving in iron pipes or anything. They'd say so many feet on a northerly course, they'd, you know, take a compass with them, and they'd lay off a course from a tree to a rock and so forth and so many feet down the other way until they uh, described the entire property but a lot of times these landmarks were gone and they had frequent fires up here you know every time the lightning uh, goes over these hills as we've seen just recently with all these fires well this is not a new phenomenon this has been going on for a long time and uh, all of these uh, a lot of these uh, landmarks uh, that used to be property corners have gone they put up posts, wooden posts, because that's all they had. Yeah, another uh, <clears throat> object of revisionism is in the founding of our country itself, the idea that the founders were all Enlightenment humanists, which, of course, is a lie. Yes. I, I want to urge people to read some of the works of Emmy Bradford on that point. Um, uh, he, he has demonstrated, and of course also rushes this independent republic and nature of American system, but um, demonstrated the the strong Christian faith of the vast majority of the of the men who founded this country, and um, it's a it's a secular humanist assertion picked up by some misled Christians that uh, the country was founded by people who wanted to overturn Christianity. Nothing could be further from the truth. Well, all you have to do is to get an atlas and look at the 
old place names, Bethlehem, Salem, uh, one uh, name after another, taken out of the Bible. That's right. And others that reflect a biblical perspective, Philadelphia, city of brotherly love, and so on. Salem, yes. Providence, Providence, Providence yes. sure, absolutely. Well, people that traveled west in covered wagons uh, had to discard items, as, particularly as they came over the mountain passes, because they had to winch these wagons down sheer rock cliffs. So you didn't take any unnecessary stuff with you. And the the deserts that they crossed and the plains that they crossed is littered today. There are people who go out with metal detectors and find remnants of things that people cast off, uh, baby buggies and odds and ends that they that weren't absolutely essential. But the one book that was essential was the Bible. It's the last thing that they would give up. If they had to make a choice out of if they had three or four books or a dozen books, they would if they had to discard something, they would discard the other books, but they would not discard the Bible. Yes, that's right. Well, one of the things that marked California too, and other states as well the high percentage of the founders who had a Christian faith. The University of California was founded as a church college. Wasn't the only one. But these people would come out into a strange area, a wilderness, and the first thing they thought of was starting churches and then schools. Well, it was the hub of social activity, and it was a stabilizing influence on the community, and it was a, a mechanism, a means by which they could dispense charity without making it on a you know a personal basis, because people were you know extremely sensitive to accepting charity, because people were much more self-reliant in those days, and they they just hated. Uh, to be, you know, beholding to anyone but the church because they knew it wasn't a personal gift. Uh, you know, they underst truly understood the meaning of charity. Well, there is a book now, a uh, very superior book, written by a Marxist, Genovese, the historian. Dr. Genovese, in writing this book, on the cell says that it is important to read the great southern Calvinistic theologians in order to understand the South. And the same can be said for other parts of the country. Uh, the influence of uh, Jonathan Edwards is known, but what about Bellamy and Hopkins? Two of his followers. Their influence was very important. Hopkins founded the first anti-slavery society. We are not aware of the contribution of godly men to the development of this country. And of course the famous Mathers and uh, 
so many others in the history of the United States. One of the things we need to get back to, and I trust the Christian schools will in time, is a rewriting of history. What they have done is to give us, so far, a rather conservative picture and a more patriotic picture of American history than the public school textbooks do. However, they have not gone back to the basic material to see what the Christian character was. Absolutely. And this is an important thing. We hear a great deal about the uh, pioneers who moved west. Mm-hmm. But how many history books tell us about the circuit riders? The circuit riders were Christians, pastors, whose church, so to speak, was a thousand miles of territory. And they covered that. They not only covered it from one end of the United States to the other, but later on they moved up to Alaska and covered Alaska. Well, these people were the only uh, peoples many, many people would see uh, during most of the year. I know in my own time, and I remember one such man, Adam Shriver, fine old pastor, who would uh, get in his car and go from one mining camp and one isolated ranch to another, all over Nevada. Everything outside of the cities was his parish, the entire state. And he would bring them Christian materials to teach their children, uh, hold worship, and uh, sometimes in very strange places and mining camps. But he was constantly on the go. Now here was a very gracious and superior man who in our time you wouldn't see outside of a cushy uh, urban pulpit. And yet Adam Shriver would uh, drive here, there, and everywhere, often roll out his sleeping bag and sleep on the side of the road, and uh, then fix his own breakfast in the morning before he drove on. Uh, his uh, life story, if someone could have written it down, and there was just a little paperback book about him, would have been a dramatic one. But those were the men that civilized the country. I know once when I was on the Indian Reservation, I drove over the mountains into the Columbia Range, and there were two ranches there. And then on the side of a mountain, this young man with his wife and two sons uh, had a little mining claim there. Nobody else came in there except a few deer hunters during deer season. But they knew Adam Shriver. And, of course, I left material there in his place to spare him the trip. These were the men who tamed America. 
There were countless numbers of them. Their importance was great because some of them would occasionally be sent to Congress. Everyone in their district, when the area became a state, trusted these circuit riders more than anyone else. And they would elect them, send them to Congress. Most of them wouldn't serve too long because they wanted to get back to their work. But they would for a time represent these isolated ranchers, uh, farmers, loggers, whatever they were. It's a part of our history that has been neglected. And it's a very colorful and exciting part. They wouldn't be allowed to uh, to do that nowadays because all of the public parks belong to the state or yes. a uh, governmental entity, and uh, the ACLU would immediately uh, cry uh, for separation of no uh, no religious uh, observances on the, on government-owned property. I just I was thinking the other day, you know, in San Francisco, how far we've come. When I was a kid. Everybody looked forward to going up to Mount Davidson where they have that big cross uh, for the Easter services. Now they want to tear it down. I mean, there are thousands of people would go up there on Easter morning and watch uh, you know, the sunrise, have sunrise services up mm-hmm. there. And we thought that was the most exciting thing that happened all year. Yeah. yeah. Well, the... Uh and we would walk up there. It was almost yes. like a, a religious pilgrimage every year. We'd walk from home, and it was miles to get up there. Start out about 3:30 in the morning. You still see relics, even here, of the circuit riders. Consider, for the for example, that in Angels Camp, there's a little congregational church, the oldest mm-hmm. church there. In Murphy's, there's another little congregational church. And if you go through these old mining camps, you'll see a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Now they're in the hands of modernists, and too often a woman preacher, because the man doesn't, uh, they don't want to go to these out-of-the-way places. But those were started by congregational circuit riders, mm-hmm. who in the old days covered every little mining camp. And those men in those days were hardcore Calvinists. We have to give credit where credit is due, too. A lot of the circuit riding was done by Methodists. Oh, uh, yes. Even though they weren't Calvinists. Uh, I prefer Methodists from that generation to many of the Calvinists today because they had a vibrant yes. faith. The Methodists were very, very good in uh, the border states, yes. in the South, and uh, Texas, that whole area, they did remarkable work, and some of them were rather uh, amazing characters. Uh, I'm trying to think of the name of the one man. Wasn't Peter Cartwright one of Peter the Cartwright? Guys? Peter Cartwright, an amazing man. You might be able to find his uh, autobiography in some old used bookstore. But Peter Cartwright was a giant of a man. He served a term in Congress. 
and uh, he once uh, when a storm was brewing came to this isolated uh, cabin went in and the woman was something of a shrew. She did not welcome a guest. And uh, so she got more and more obvious and open in her remarks, which showed her antagonism to the faith as well as to Peter Cartwright. And the man was very, very obviously embarrassed. So Peter Cartwright said something innocuous, uh, such as, if, uh, excuse me a moment, and if you don't mind. And he went over, picked up the woman bodily with his two hands, went uh, to the door, opened it, and put her out there, and then barred the door. It started to rain, and she was screaming in a total rage, as profane as could be. And uh, the husband was very nervous and upset. And Peter Cartwright said, Pay her no mind, enjoy your food. And uh, (laughs) went on eating. And finally, she was pleading for mercy. And uh, he called out, Do you promise to behave? Oh, yes. I don't mean just tonight. I mean for the rest of your life. <laughs> You're not going to embarrass your husband and so on. He got every kind of promise from her. And finally he let her in and told her to go over the fire to the fire and dry herself out. And apparently she was a good woman after that because she didn't know when Peter Cartwright might check up on her and what might not happen the next time. But... Uh, I know I told John Lofton about one of the wildest of the characters among circuit riders, Lorenzo Dow. And the Dow Chemical Corporation, he was one of the original fathers of that family. Although it was a few generations later that they developed into a wealthy corporation. And uh, you can find his collected works here and there in one fat volume. And it's a treasure trove. Uh, I told John Lofton a few stories about Lorenzo Down once, which he greatly enjoyed. So he looked here and there for a copy. And he found one, but it was so expensive... He couldn't afford it. And he went to Ohio to preach at some church and went to a used bookstore. And in the discard bin of things that were reduced to 50 cents or less, he found the collected works of Lorenzo Dow, this fat volume, for 50 cents. And he let out a whoop of joy. And the owner's wife came over and said, Did you find a treasure? And he held it up. Lorenzo Dow and she said oh yes that's a good book but we had it here at a high price we've had it for years we reduced it we knew it was an important work but it's of no use to us if no one will buy it 
So we finally put it in that discard bin for 50 cents. The next stop would have been the dump. Well, Lorenzo Dow, oh, speaking of the Peter Cartwright incident with a woman, uh, he became a widower and he remarried a somewhat younger woman and uh, found that he really had inherited a mother-in-law as well. <laughs> so he had two women in the house. And uh, they were out to civilize Lorenzo Dow. And he found it very trying being nagged by two women. So finally in disgust, he went out and... Uh, wrote on a board women rule here and posted up <laughs> by on his gate and uh, the neighbor across the way asked him to wait a minute and he went and got a board and wrote on it they do here too <laughs> <laughs> but Lorenzo on one occasion if I may digress a bit because this is a part of our history that you don't encounter anymore. Well, I'll tell a couple of stories about Lorenzo. On one occasion, he stopped at this inn and someone during the evening came from their room. It was a primitive log cabin inn. Something had been stolen and that was rare on the frontier. And uh, Lorenzo said, no problem. And he said uh, to the innkeeper, go out to your hen house and bring in a chicken. They brought it in. And uh, he said, uh, douse the lamp. And he said, each of you line up now by this table where this hen is squatting. And as you go by, when I give you the notice to do so, each of you pat the hen on the back. And the one of you who is a thief, God is going to make that hen cackle and reveal who he is. Well, uh, what he did the minute they doused the lights was to uh, go over to the stove and get some soot and uh, put it all over the hen's back. Everyone went by. The hen did not cackle, so he told the innkeeper's wife to light the lamp. And then he said, let me see your hands. And one man had clean hands. He said, there's the thief. <laughs> that was Lorenzo. On... Uh, Another occasion, he was uh, speaking at a camp meeting out in the open where a stand had been rigged for the speaker and there were, oh, between five and 10,000 people who were coming to camp out there and listen to the preaching. And uh, Lorenzo Dow when uh, he was looking over the facilities to make sure everything was the way he wanted it, heard a little black boy, a slave boy, 
of blowing a little trumpet a little ways off and he got an idea and he told the boy what to do uh, to get up in the tree and he was going to pay him so much if he'd get up in the tree before folks came get up there with his trumpet and when he gave a certain signal he was to blow for all he was worth so he preached on that occasion on the last judgment and it was a fire and brimstone sermon and he said and what if Gabriel's horn were to blow this very evening are you prepared to meet your maker are you going to be one of the redeemed are you going to go to hell for all eternity and he really worked him up to a fine pitch and hit again on the trumpet of Gabriel and gave a signal on the black boy blew for all he was worth and they say there was a one gigantic moan as people keeled over and faint <laughs> and when they came to and realized it was a little black slave boy they wanted to kill him <laughs> and uh, Lorenzo Dow bellowed out don't lay a hand on that boy. If a little black boy blowing his trumpet scares you half to death, how much more will Gabriel on the day of judgment unless you repent? He had the biggest crowd come forward that evening he'd ever had. Well, there are so many stories like that about Lorenzo Dow. And he was one of a great number one of the wildest characters was a cowboy evangelist in Texas and Arizona, but that's another story. Anything any of you want to add now before we close? You see, here's a great part of American history. Think of the things that uh, could be written about it. There was one book written about 10, 15 years ago, maybe 20, uh, was about the Frontier Circuit Riders. The title was, I believe, Pistol in Pocket, Bible in Hand. And it was an account of these peoples. There was some interest in the time of uh, maybe having a television series of these true stories, but it fell through. Well, thank you all for listening, and God bless you.